Welcome back to episode 34 of In the Shadow of the Evening Trees. I'm Jennifer Von Ebers. I'm David Von Ebers. With our cat Gordy. <laughs> That's Gordy Von Ebers. Yes, who also wants to participate in She's this week's episode. Sitting at the top of the basement stairs crying. She literally has not cried all day. Um, I don't think. Right. And now we just start recording and then it's like, hey, right. what about me? Yep. That's how that works. Welcome back to another uh, episode. Uh, we're happy to have you here. Um, I did want to start it off for a second um, and something I was going to share with you is... Um... <laughs> Do I need a lawyer? <laughs> Represent yourself. <laughs> um, is one of the things I think I've... Um, starting this podcast up again and in the past, I would say, month that I've been doing that I haven't really done in the past is trying to keep up on current events. There you go. So for those of you who don't know me, I like rainbows and butterflies. <laughs> and unicorns. I, yeah. And Sometimes I kind unicorns. of like surround my feed is all pets and food and um, things like that. But then it also is a disservice not to see what else is going on around the world and not pretend that things aren't happening, even though they are kind of thing. So I want to thank you because you're, all, you're always up on current events. I'm always making trouble. Well, you you know what's going on, and I think that's important to know what's going on, especially in our genre of this podcast. Um, I'm just trying to figure out like what you know what's happening, and just yeah. being in the know. I'm not on Twitter, but um, well, that's I smart because can... <laughs> it's a nightmare. Um, the problem, though, it's funny you mentioned that. That's exactly kind of what the problem is. Is you would think, <laughs> you would think that with all the access to information that people have, it'd be easier to get at uh, the truth. But it almost seems like it's harder now to get at the truth, you know, because there's so much noise and it's harder to, I think, separate fact from fiction with uh, social media and all that sort of thing. You know, I, I just a, a small example of it, all this controversy over teaching history in the schools and you know whether or not we should be honest and and frank about the bad things that our country has done over the years and the bad things that have happened to indigenous people and obviously black people and other groups uh and i you know when when i was in high school and we didn't have the internet you know we had books and my ap american history class when i was in a junior in high school you know we read for example D. Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is, uh, you know, basically the history of the American West told from the indigenous point of view instead of the white American expansionist point of view. Uh, and, and it was really fascinating, but it was, you know, a pretty faithful account, but from a perspective that um, most people were not familiar with. And the thing about it was no one ever said in history class that any one book or any one theory or any one historian represented the absolute unerring truth on the subject. Instead, what we did was we tried to derive information from a variety of sources because D. Brown may not have had everything exactly 100% right, but he introduced a new point of view into the discussion right. that was important and that had been overlooked. And so I think there was almost in some ways we were actually better at trying to get at the truth by bringing in diverse voices. Now uh, we're going in the opposite direction where they, you know, people don't want diverse voices, diverse voices. And when I say diverse, I don't just mean like ethnically, culturally, racially, religiously diverse. I mean, people who have a different perspective. 
D. Brown, you know, he, and, and people since that book have come out, other historians maybe have criticized it and said, well, it's not accurate, and I, not 100% accurate. There's a lot of accurate stuff in the book, and I don't think anyone doubts that, but, but people will criticize it. That's okay. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who started the 1619 project that was originally, uh, the New York Times originally published as a series of articles, and then it became a book, people criticize her because they think, well, not every aspect of her uh, book is 100% accurate, or they say, well, she left out this point. And, and I, I keep wanting to say, you're missing the point. The study of history is bringing in diverse perspectives because no one of us will ever see historical events the same completely way. accurately, right. right? There was a famous Marxist historian in the 19th century named Max Weber, or Weber, however you pronounce it in German, <laughs> you know, who viewed everything through an economic lens and viewed all historical events through um, his critique of capitalism. No one ever said Max Weber was 100% right all the time, but he brought a new perspective into the discussion about history. And so his work was valuable, even though other historians criticized it in the meantime. Same with Dee Brown, the same with Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, but we, we have become ironically much more close-minded by virtue of the fact that you know Nicole Hannah-Jones can write a series of articles and and write a book and then every um, you know high school educated dumbass pardon the expression <laughs> with a Twitter account can go on and explain why she's wrong even though they don't have any qualifications to critique her work or, but, pro or probably read it <laughs> right or, or read it but but it hurt their feelings mm -hmm. as white people so you know they and, and and it's it's one thing for somebody uh, some idiot gamer sitting in his mom's basement with his cheeto stained fingers and Mountain Dew critiquing Nicole Hannah-Jones that's one thing, but now we've got you know presidential candidates who are actually taking that same point of view and saying, you can't teach this true history uh, in, in the schools, or you can't, and again, it's not about what is 100% accurate or not. No book of history, no historical book ever written, no history textbook or any other book on history has ever been 100% correct. Even the Bible. <laughs> well, okay, I'm not talking about the yeah. I'm talking about history, I'm yeah. talking about history. No book ever written is 100% accurate because human beings are never 100% accurate. So that's the reason why it's so important to have diverse voices when you're teaching history. So now we've got, oh, in Florida, you have to teach that slaves learn beneficial skills for being enslaved. What madness is this? Yeah, so crazy. Um, I do not like that. But I um, think that going forward, I am going to read more about um, what's going on in the world just to be up to date um, about and stop living yeah. in um, a bubble because that doesn't benefit anyway. You know, you can't get involved and change things if you really don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's true. I just wish it was easier to get a, a, an accurate handle on what's going on. And part of the problem too, and we've talked about, you know, some media criticism in the past, but part of the problem is that the media, a lot of people in the media are sort of you know, obsessed with um, trends and what's popular, and they're obsessed with social media. 
So we saw, you know, these stories about, you know, if, if people objected to J.K. Rowling because she's transphobic or if people were upset with a joke a comedian told on stage or whatever, we hear all this business about quote unquote cancel culture, some dumb two word alliterative phrase. It's like a, a hashtag on social media that people think has some actual meaning. Right. And then the media took that and ran with it and they took they use this stupid sing-songy little alliterative hashtag phrase and treated it as though it was some serious intellectual concept. You know, the media does that all the time. And when real acts of censorship happen, like we just this week, there was a story about a professor at Texas A&M who criticized, I, I don't offhand recall whether it was the governor of Texas or the attorney general, um, but it, but but the dean who oversaw her department immediately contacted the governor and apologized. And then this person was suspended for having criticized a public official. That's censorship. 100%. Right? Students uh, protesting some right wing speaker on campus. That's not censorship, kids. That's the First Amendment. Right. That's people exercising their First Amendment rights. The, the the obnoxious right winger has a right to speak and the students have a right to object to it. But when a public official gets someone suspended from their job over criticism, that's textbook censorship. But the media has spent the last several years so obsessed with this ridiculously stupid hashtag that bears no relation to actual literal legal or intellectual concepts around free speech and freedom of expression and so forth. When they become so obsessed with a political talking point, they lose sight of what really matters. And what happens is politicians like the governor of Texas get away with this nonsense. They get away with actual censorship because the media was too, too, too concerned about people being mean to J.K. Rowling on Twitter. So it's hard. It's hard to get at the what's actually going on anymore. And then that also, obviously, when that stuff happens, then other people think, "Well, I can't speak up either because that I'll have ramifications." Right, and it's one thing to say, "I don't want." If I say something racist, people are going to be mean to me on Twitter. Okay, sorry, that's that's the price you pay. That's the First Amendment. The First Amendment is you get to say the racist thing, and other people get to criticize you for it. But when someone can't criticize a public official, an elected official, without fear of reprisal, that's censorship. That's what censorship censorship is. It's the government preventing people from speaking or punishing people for, for the things they said. It's not Twitter suspending an account because they were pu pushing, you know, Holocaust denial or something like that. It's not a private entity in the business of publishing content on the Internet, making editorial decisions about what content to put out. That is the essence of free speech. You can't go to Random House or, or, or another publishing house and say, you must publish my Holocaust denial book or you're censoring me if you don't. It doesn't work that way. They're a private company. They have the same free speech rights that you have, and they have the right to say no. That is true. I would never um, think about that, is that um, as a teacher, it doesn't matter in what level, that you um, are not allowed to speak what you want to it, yeah. in any realm um, kind of thing and obviously in politics um, 
people on the right think they're right, people on the left think they're right, you're never going to win that case, but doesn't mean you can't challenge and um, yeah. share what your beliefs are. And you get in, we get into these weird things where in a public university um, where the the professors are agents of the state, they are state employees, um, might, uh, for example, refuse to acknowledge a student's pronouns or their their name, their chosen name, right? That That's happened. And then if the college professor, again, who's an agent of the state, if the university disciplines that person, somehow the college professor says, you're violating my free speech rights. Well, hold on a second, tap the brakes. You're not a private citizen in the classroom. You're an agent of the state in the classroom. The student who's paying tuition to attend that public university is the taxpayer, is the citizen, is the, is the private citizen in that context. Do you, as a, a, an agent of the state, have the right to discriminate against the private citizen in a public uh, classroom? I would argue no. I would argue that the students' rights under the 14th Amendment, the students' rights to equal protection, outweigh your uh, whatever you think your speech rights are as an agent of the state acting in your official capacity. But the, but the courts have sort of turned that on its head, and, and they'll protect the professor. Again, we're not talking, I'm not talking about private schools, although it's not quite as clear-cut when you talk about private institutions because they accept an awful lot of federal money and an awful lot of state money. But put aside private schools for a second. In the public university context or the public high school or elementary school context, the teachers and administrators are the state and the students and the parents are private individuals. I don't think that the right, the alleged rights of a college professor uh, as an agent of the state to speak in a classroom override the actual rights of the private citizen to equal protection under the law and due process. So I don't know. I think the courts have really kind of messed this up and haven't struck the balance correctly. But that's a, that's an entirely different topic. But but one thing is clear that, and this is true in any context, any public employee has First Amendment rights in relation to their employer. So if a cop is, is upset about the way the department is, functions and they go public with their criti criticism of the chief of police, the First Amendment absolutely protects the cop in that context. When the cop is dealing with a private citizen on the street, that's a very different scenario. The same thing applies in the classroom, in a, in a public university or a public school. The, the uh, college professor who criticizes a government official, who criticizes the governor or the attorney general or the president of the university, has First Amendment rights in relation to that person. Do they have the same First Amendment rights in relation to a student in the classroom who is absolutely, without question, a private citizen and absolutely has rights? You know, in other words, it's you're the government when you're a college professor in a public university classroom. You're the government. You, you would not have the right. I mean, I think it's pretty clear <clears throat> that you couldn't say, I'm going to give all the men in the class better grades than the women. Right. Right. That would be a violation of equal protection. You can't say I'm going to grade <clears throat> black students more harshly than white students. 
that would clearly be a violation of equal protection. So you are limited <clears throat> in what you can do. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in your heart of hearts that men are smarter than women or white people are smarter than black people. You're, the Constitution still restrains you in that situation because you're a public employee. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the First Amendment rights of college professors that I think we get wrong. But one thing is 100% clear. When you criticize a, another government official, like the governor, like another college professor, like the administration of your school or whatever, you clearly have First Amendment rights in that scenario, whether or not it's a public institution. Yeah, I never would have um, thought about that in that capacity, but um, well, it's it makes sense. Yeah, it's complicated, but people dumb it down. If if a right wing professor refuses to acknowledge the, someone's pronouns or something like that, then the only thing that matters to to right wingers is that person's quote unquote First Amendment rights, even though it's not entirely clear that they have the kind of First Amendment rights that you imagine they might have. Because again, they're not speaking as a private individual. This is their job as a government employee. And the Constitution absolutely controls their job as a public employee. So, I don't know. That's a totally different... We could do a whole episode about yeah. that. Um, in other news, it's almost August, which is crazy. Um, I, we were both thinking that it was... Uh, further away um, than it actually is. So that's kind of sad that I always think like August, back to school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're really pushing it to the back to school ads on TV and all that. Yeah. Uh, and anytime I go into um, a tar Target or any store where they've got all the back to school stuff in July, it's kind of like, okay, let's just give, give the kids a break. Yeah, all these people were whining about pride displays. They should be upset about back to school stuff uh, starting in July. Uh, there'll they'll be Halloween stuff up by by the 1st of September. Yeah. Christmas by October 1st, mm -hmm. you know. So that's what you should protest about. Don't <laughs> don't care about don't worry about rainbows. <laughs> it's the Christmas displays in October you should be pissed off about. Yeah, and uh, anybody who's buying Halloween candy in September, <laughs> you're not you're not you're saving not, that for right. Halloween. You're, you're um, loading yeah. up and then it, having it and then uh, gonna have to buy it again and again yeah <laughs> uh we have our daughter home for the weekend which we is do. nice uh and she is working at uh, her university this summer so um happy to her have her back this weekend uh because pretty much she'll be going back to school and then um it'll be uh a while till we see her again i know it's it's no fun it is no fun it's no fun we'll have to decide whether we're going to go see a football game this year yeah um, in October, right? Is well, homecoming, homecoming is in October, is October, but the season yeah, goes... That's true. You know. Although last year we did go to a football game and David got excellent seats. The best seats. seats I've ever had at any sporting event. Um, and we were close to the coach, co close right to the, the bench. players. It was very exciting. Uh, and it was a great game too because they, they, they played Minnesota. Minnesota was good last year. And it was close back and forth, but it was a lot of fun. And like what I consider like the perfect fall day, it was probably like um, high 50s, low 60s, sunny, but you could still like wear a jacket and just be like um, not cold, uh, which was fantastic. Yeah. It always amazes me when you watch, um, I love watching um, football, baseball, on TV, hockey. Um, 
how much bigger it seems on TV. And then you get there and you're yeah. like, the field looks actually kind of small. Yeah, it, it, that is a funny thing. That is a funny thing. Do they still have the quarterback that they have this year for them? Or did he graduate? I don't know, to be honest. That guy that's was a, amazing. That was a good, that's a good question. I know that, that their running back, who is the like one of the best in the country, uh, he graduated. So that's, that's unfortunate. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. But, at, I mean, that happens. Uh, we'll see. They're definitely better in, over the last few years than they've been in a while. So uh, that's a good thing. That's I just think it's thing. fun to just be on college campuses in general. I love the energy yeah. of it and seeing all the students. Uh, Claire is obviously going to the same school that David went to, so um, that's always fun for you, I think, to go back just to see how things have changed over the years and yeah. um, new uh, buildings and all that stuff and the same old stomping grounds. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I mean, um, Champaign-Urbana uh, area, the Champaign-Urbana area um, is much more, you know, developed and much more sophisticated than it was when I was an undergraduate. Um, so that's kind of interesting. There are, you know, all over the country, there are these little pockets of, you know, there's communities where, like, collectively there'll be 150,000, 200,000, 300,000 people and we don't often think about those places. They're not really like they're really not small towns in any in mm -hmm. any sense. I mean they don't, you know, there are plenty of small towns in the US that are like, you know, little isolated towns of 5 or 6,000 people that aren't that close to other towns. But there are all these little sort of micro metropolitan areas like Champaign-Urbana in Illinois. We have several of them. Um, you know, Springfield, where the state capital is, Peoria, uh, up in uh, Rockford in the northwestern part of the state. But uh, Champaign-Urbana is kind of neat in that respect in that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's exactly like <clears throat> Chicago or New York or something like that. Yeah. But it, but it's very, it, it is much more sophisticated and culturally diverse and everything like that. It's, it's an interesting place. And there are these kinds of communities all over the country. Um, I think we have this weird perspective in America that you either have giant cities or you have tiny little towns and we don't really pay much attention to all of you know the Tulsa's and the Oklahoma cities and right although those places are, are bigger than Champaign-Urbana but you know what I mean I mean there are these medium-sized cities and these kind of micro metropolitan areas all over the place that are really interesting places and um, I just saw that like Lawrence Lawrence Kansas has something like 300,000 people I had no idea it wow. was that big um, or maybe that's, again, maybe that's like the metropolitan area, not just the city itself. But anyway, kind of a fascinating thing that I think a lot of us in the big cities don't really think about all that much. That is true. I um, also like seeing uh, there's a parents group for the university uh, of all of the incoming freshmen and just the deluge of questions that people ask. Because it is, you don't know what to expect, especially yeah. if it's your first kid going to school this is our third going to college so we kind True. of like no and obviously it was a lot easier for claire to go to u of i because we were familiar with the campus we'd been there obviously you went to school there so there wasn't that kind of like what's the area going to be like what is this yeah. you know what it's how it's going to be so but it is daunting if you're a first-time parent of a college student a how your kid is going to adjust will they adjust how do you help them? Yeah. Are they going to make friends? You know, all that stuff is just, uh, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's kind of overwhelming. It is. But um, 
she and Claire had also done a, a summer camp there after her junior year in high school. So she'd spent, you know, a week on campus. I don't know if it wasn't a full week, I guess. Uh, I think it was Monday through Friday. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, so she had some familiar familiarity going in too. That helped. Yeah. And I think it's also weird that we're approaching. So she graduated high school in 2020, obviously during lockdown and did not get to graduate, did not get to go to prom. Her first year of college was basically online that whole generation that went through that is now graduating college. So yeah, that is like wild. insane to think like I've seen kids say, you know, I was just, you know, finishing up my senior year of high school with all that going on. So, and I think that is, um, although uh, it was a horrible time, you know, they developed a lot of skills that many kids didn't have to, you know, navigating yeah, how true. to communicate through a computer and, you know, online um, school and Zoom and Teams and all that stuff. Which... Well, right, and, and like no one wants to talk about how anytime there's some kind of major, you know, crisis, um, we actually tend to learn a lot of valuable things that are that you can apply even outside the crisis. So one of the things that most people aren't even aware of is there's this revolution in the court systems across the country in access to justice because we. Courts were sort of forced to figure out how to handle things remotely for a period of time, and they got very good at it, actually. You know, I mean, I know it's unpopular to say a bureaucracy handled the situation well, but our courts actually did a pretty amazing job around the country. And, you know, in some places like in Illinois, I don't think this is unique to Illinois, but in Illinois, um, the, our state Supreme Court had just begun a sort of a, a, a hard look at, you know, access to justice on, in all sorts of different ways across the state. Um, and then COVID hit and we had to go to all these remote hearings and had to figure out how to make the technology work, how to conduct hearings, how to, you know, maintain some sense of order in this chaos. And those lessons proved to be incredibly important in terms of figuring out how to make sure that people everywhere, no matter where they were, could attend court when they had to, that lawyers could represent clients in you know far away locations, provide legal services to people who might not otherwise get it because they could appear remotely. You might be sitting in the Chicago suburbs and have a client in far downstate Illinois. Now you have the ability to appear and represent that client and you don't have to charge them for traveling hundreds of miles and so forth. Right. I mean, this technology and the use of it and the way, I hate to say this because it'll make people mad, but the way government and government agencies and government entities have figured out how to use this technology to help people, to make services more available to people has actually been a revelation. And I don't think people understand how important this has been. I mean, it's it's terrible that it took a pandemic that killed more than a million Americans. But imagine if we had ignored it. Not only would we have lost more than a million Americans, but we also wouldn't have made these advancements in figuring out. And you know, I know remote schooling was you know it didn't work very well. That's I mean it worked well I think on the college level because right. those kids are more you know, self-starters. I mean, you don't have to go to college. You choose to go to college. So Absolutely. needless to say, those kids were probably in a better position to figure it, figure out how to do it. And they were more committed to it. 
remote education was a very challenging thing. But even there, even in like the worst part of how we dealt with the pandemic was, you know, having to shut schools down and so forth. We still learned a lot of things because we we figured out how to we still figured out how to make school accessible to some kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to. We still now, unfortunately, we didn't look at it that way. We should have said there will always be kids who are more vulnerable than others who might need to appear remotely in some circumstances. Now, maybe that's something you can do. Uh, if a kid has, a, you know, an autoimmune situation, there may be times when it would be better for that child to, to attend remotely. Other kids can be, be in the classroom, but at least a kid might have the option right. of participating remotely. Um, I, don't know we're gonna, I don't know if we're going to capitalize on those technologies the way the court system has, because schools have become so politicized. But, but even in that situation, even as bad as remote education was, we learned some important things. We learned about the, the inequities in access to technology, right? And if we care enough to invest in, in, in making things better for kids, we could address that. You know, probably we won't because again, it's all become politicized, but at least we had the opportunity to see the rifts and the divisions and the inequities in society. And if we give a damn, we'll do something about it. Uh, you know, there's a chance we won't because people want to make everything about school political instead of, you know, just taking a hard look at where things are and trying to make it better. But um, the opportunity is there. Whether or not we take it as a country is a different story, but the opportunity is there. I was just thinking about when you're saying about legal access for all, being able to um, log on remotely from the comfort of your home is also probably less stressful for the person who has to go to court because that's yeah. a scary entity. I got a ticket right. one time and David came with I me did. to court and thank God because um, if I was by myself, I don't think I, I maybe I would have cried. <laughs> and you would, you also would have been stuck there for much longer. That's true. Yes, yeah. I tend got to called, let, I got yeah. called right away. <laughs> they, do, they do that when people have lawyers, but that's because, because it costs money and they're trying to, you know, control the cost. Anyway. That that was that was a bit of a tangent. The one thing I um, I do want to change the subject. Yes. Because I do think we should talk about um, the, uh, Sinead O'Connor passing away. Yes. Which was just a horrible thing. Um, and by the way, I, I learned a couple of things that are of uh, of interest because there might be a lot of people speculating about how she died because uh, you know she was very very public about her mental health struggles. And not only that, very sadly, she lost a teenage son to suicide um, just within the last year or so, I think mm -hmm. in 2022. Um, and so, you know, when a person who's sort of open about their struggles dies suddenly and unexpectedly, it leads to some speculation. Uh, I saw a couple of things on that point. Number one, there was a BBC article on um Thursday, I believe. I saw it on Thursday morning. That's, uh, so, so she died in, in London because she was apparently working on a new record, which is, uh, you know, a sad thing. We, won't, we may not get to ever hear that music. But, but the British police are saying there is nothing suspicious about her death. So that's, you know, that's important. I mean, people do die unexpectedly. You know, I, I talk about Joe Strummer all the time. Joe Strummer from The Clash had an undiagnosed heart condition, and he went out for a walk 
at the age of 50, we walked his dogs one morning and came home, collapsed and died. So I mean, on you know, that these things happen for all kinds of reasons. But another interesting thing I saw was an article in the in the Guardian that said that, you know, over the past few years she had really found a community. She lived in a, a couple of different small towns in Ireland. One was called Bray, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the other one uh, in County Roscommon, I think, in any event. These smaller communities, Bray is very close to Dublin, so it's close to a big city, but it's still a small community. And she'd really fit in well. Um, she could hang out in public places and people wouldn't mob her. You know, there was a, there was a, one of the stories was there was a pub in one of these towns where someone had organized, you know, like a weekly um, get together where musicians would just play together. And she would go and hang out with, um, and play guitar with because she was That's a guitar so nice. player, and hang out with these these musicians. And again, like everyone knew who she was, but nobody bothered her. They she just, could be like a regular person. Right, she could live just a normal life. And she had been back in the public eye, especially in Ireland. Um, she was still performing, and although she had converted to Islam, she um, she still. When she performed, she still went by Sinead O'Connor and, and not her, her um, Muslim name. But I saw this story on um, on Twitter. There was a guy who worked for an LGBTQ organization who said that he got, um, I, I imagine it was a, a social media message from someone by the name of Magda, uh, who said that she had a lot of unused makeup that she wanted to donate to his organization so that trans women could use it. So after exchanging messages for a couple of days to work out the logistics, he realized it was Sinead O'Connor. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> she was always a champion of the community, right? But um, I, just, I just think that one of the things people don't maybe appreciate is that she is really dedicated her life to like protecting vulnerable people and you remember that big controversy on saturday night live where um you know she tore up a picture of the pope and 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 a lot of i mean listen i grew up catholic i'm half irish i you know i didn't fully understand what was happening at the time um but a lot of us at least in america a lot of american catholics did not want to know what was happening you know and she was um obviously protesting the Catholic Church sex abuse uh, scandal. And scandal is like a, 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 a an understatement, yeah. you know. And, and it had been perhaps even worse in Ireland than it was in the U.S. And maybe that's why she was a bit more in tune to it. And she'd gone through some horrible things in her own life. Yeah, her um, mother was very abusive. Her mother was abusive. She was institutionalized for a period of time in a church-run facility for you know, uh, young women who were supposed to be trouble or whatever. And so she'd seen abuse firsthand and was, you know, ahead of the curve. As she was in so many things, she was ahead of a curve in recognizing the depth and breadth of the scandal. And I remember at the time, I, I, I would never have uh, uh, like punished her for it, but I was like, I didn't get it. And it was, it, in my mind, and this is a terrible thing to say, but in my mind, I felt more like, you know, why are you attacking Catholics? She wasn't attacking Catholics. That was a stupid thing to think. She wasn't doing that at all. She was pointing out two things. Number one, you know, the abuse itself, but also 
the complicity of the church as an organization in protecting these people who were committing these offenses and and what i think most american catholics were not prepared to deal with at that time was that like you could see these things as individual incidents oh this horrible priest did a horrible thing or this horrible bishop found out about this horrible thing a priest did and covered it up or moved the priest to a different um, diocese where that priest had the opportunity to uh, um, victimize more kids or whatever. But we saw these things as isolated incidents rather than appreciating the responsibility of the church as an institution from the bottom to the top, you know. And John Paul II, was, was, who was Pope at the time, was someone who I think liberal Catholics really admired. You know, he was a guy who would help protect Jewish people in Poland during the Holocaust when the Germans took over Poland. He was a guy who, you know, survived the Soviet oppression in Poland after the war and so forth. So I think a lot of liberal Catholics held John Paul II on a pedestal. He was one of the first popes to maybe acknowledge that the church, and this is sort of ironic in a way when you think about it, but he was one of the first popes to acknowledge the church's culpability in looking the other way when Hitler came to power in Germany and not, you know, Germany always had a big Catholic population, still does, and, and the Pope didn't, the sitting Pope at the time, didn't really do anything to criticize Hitler or whatever. And the church deserves a lot of responsibility. So the irony is John Paul II was willing to recognize the church's culpability when it came to looking the other way uh, when Hitler came to power but we, as American Catholics, weren't prepared to hold the church responsible for, as an institution, uh, for the child sex abuse scandal. So, I mean, our minds were messed up, uh, to be honest, and we were wrong. We were wrong. Um, but in any event, um, a, a lot of us, and I include myself in this, you know, really owe her an apology for not having been... Um, uh, you know, for not understanding, and we weren't prepared to accept the culpability of the entire institution, top to bottom. And lay people too bore some responsibility because sure. we looked the other way. You know, we knew. I mean, I I didn't know personally of anyone who sure. did it. There were allegations. I later found out about a, a priest at the church that I went to when I was a kid. And I knew the priest, and I never would have guessed that he had done anything improper, but there were allegations against him later on. Whatever, I won't even name names because I don't know you know, the truth of it or whatever happened to those allegations. But in any event, putting that aside, um, I saw that the organization SNAP, which is, I don't, if I don't, may not have the acronym correctly, but it's Survivors Network of People Who Were Abused by Priests, um, you know, when, when Sinead O'Connor died, they issued a statement, you know, thanking her for all the support. And that's the thing, between her willingness to take that risk, to point it out in a very public way, and then her later openness about her mental health struggles and so forth, she's probably helped, you know, there's probably thousands and thousands of people who got actual help from that, right? Who said, who, who either change their way of thinking about the church like many of us did um, or who um, you know who, who who were willing to come forward with allegations that they were abused or on the mental health side you know decided to get help because a famous person was saying here I am you know this right. is what I'm going through and this is what I'm doing about it and also to be courageous enough to not worry about her career 
you know, to do that and then right, just like... Right, Oh, you know, you're talking about censorship and all that. So when this whole thing evolved at, or, or came about at the same time that they the, um, they wanted to put, they wanted um, Andrew Dice Clay to host the show. A ridiculously stupid misogynist. One of the worst stand-up comedians ever. He wasn't funny. He was just a dick. And she refused to appear on the show with him. And so did Nora Dunn, by the way, one of the cast members at the time. And Lorne Michaels, the producer, was, you know, all, you know, oh, he's just a comedian and this is all about free speech. And, you know, was so critical of Sinead O'Connor for refusing to appear with Andrew Dice Clay. So he cared about the First Amendment when it comes to protecting this terrible jackass right. comedian. But when she tore up a picture of the post of the Pope on air, she he banned her from life from the show. Lauren Michaels banned her from for life from appearing on Saturday Night Live because she protested church sex abuse. He was more concerned about protecting a disgusting misogynist. I can't even say it. I'm so I'm <laughs> spitting nails right now. A disgusting misogynist than he was. You know, uh, holding the, the the church accountable accountable for sex abuse. So crazy. Yeah, really. But is. yeah, it was very unexpected to hear that news this week, last week, and um, very sad. Yeah, I talked about it a bit on my own um, uh, podcast, but we won't go into that now. Anyway, that's, so that's uh, our episode. Yeah. We um, did talk the gamut, I guess you could you say. Could say um, that. And. Uh, we appreciate you sticking um, out and listening to our podcast. And we will be back next week. And we guys hope you have a good week.